We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be once again joined by Chris Clark, the author of The Dark Knight and the Puppet Master, and of a new paper published by Progressive Britain, Thinking in Straight Lines. The country's more progressive, so why is the left losing? Welcome back to the podcast, Chris. Thanks a lot for having me back, Will. It's great to have you back. Um, the first question that I'd like to ask is, what made you decide to write this paper uh, for Progressive Britain? Well, it, it came about in several stages, really. It's, uh, But the key point was after the last round of local elections, we're obviously recording this podcast on the eve of the 2022 local elections, um, but in the the a year ago, we had the Hartlepool by-election loss and a kind of um, a continuation of some of that polarisation that we'd seen over the past few years. Uh, and there was quite a bit of debate online about what was driving that polarisation. Yeah. Um, so it started really with that question, why is the country becoming more politically polarised, if you like? Mm-hmm. Um, we were discussing just, just before we, uh, a little bit earlier, that there's many more seats with 20,000 majorities for Labour, but also 20,000 majorities for the Conservatives, for example. So the country is polarising in a political sense. But um, my my general sense um, is that people, all parts of the country are generally moving in a kind of left liberal mm. direction, potentially at different speeds, potentially from different bases. Um, but there isn't a story of people going in two different ways in terms of their values. That's my sense based on all the polling evidence I've seen and, and based on my anecdotal experiences as well. When you speak to people who are more sort of socially conservative in their, or who are more kind of Tory leaning, it's not that there's massive, massive values differences, uh, yet there is this big polarisation difference. So I wanted to try and get to the bottom of that really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And w- one of the things that I think is uh, interesting that you touch upon in the introduction, is um, when you, uh, you use an anecdote from 2015 when you were in South Thamet, and you um, recall a conversation that you had with um, someone who was a potential Labour voter who was there at an event um, to see um, Ross Kemp, who, who, who was there um, canvassing for Labour, who was trying to get support for Labour in that election. And you say in um, that anecdote that you were trying to refer to an area as a poor area, but that you got sort of a bit um, scrambled in how you wanted to to get it out, and in in the end, you um, you made a remark saying that it may or may not be less affluent than other areas, and you use that as an example of how um, politics, particularly the politics of many on the left, has become a lot less direct and attempted to um, qualify. Um, what is meant by particular words and particular statements. Do you think that this is something that has perhaps um, not just come about in uh, years subsequent to the 2010 election because of a, 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 a sh- perhaps a further shift leftwards uh, for the Labour Party, but is also due to um, the rise of communication online? Because quite often when you're speaking to someone online about a particular um, topic, it's difficult often to be quite as direct as you 
like to be because, you know, you have to sort of like make your point as unambiguous as possible for fear of someone either deliberately or um, undeliberately misinterpreting um, what you're saying. That's a really interesting uh, angle to it, actually. Um, Will, uh, the the anecdote you described was one in South Thanet where um, I was working as the the comms officer, but I I just remembered this conversation where I, rather than referring to the area being poorer, ended up sort of caveating and then caveating a second time until what I said didn't really make any sense. And and it really came from, and I I partly put that anecdote in at the start of this essay because I wanted to, you know, to be clear that I'm not saying... I've got some master. I'm not great at this either myself. Yeah. Um, but I, it, I, you do sometimes feel that the kind of uh, the, the liberal left um, are sort of frightened to just talk directly sometimes. Mm. And I, I was guilty of that on this occasion that I mentioned. Um, whether that's down to online, uh, the online debates is a different question. And I'm not completely sure how, how big a role online plays i do think online amplifies the fear that and, and generally actually not just online not just social media but the um uh the 24 hour news context amplifies the fear that maybe progressive people have of not wanting to to say something where they put their put their foot in it by being too direct um so whether that's the source of the problem i'm not sure but i think it exacerbates the problem because my being a kind of um, sort of liberal left progressive sort of person or liking to think of myself in that way, my part of my fear of saying this area was, it's a poorer area, which it was, um, was that I was kind of frightened of appearing to imply that its poverty was of its own making or that, it, that was somehow, or that I was stigmatising or talking the area down, which I think is a consideration that is quite a well-meaning consideration, you might say, but also completely yeah. created a barrier between myself and uh, when a, a voter at a community centre who probably um, would have had quite similar values to me on a lot of big questions. So, um, yeah, the uh, yeah my my answer to that would be online and the wider fear of being caught out <laughs> that social media <laughs> creates probably makes um, people who are what I call more systemic thinkers, more mm-hmm. society's fault uh, type thinkers pussyfoot around subjects a little bit more than they otherwise might but I don't think it's necessarily the root cause of the problem yeah and and, and on that um, point one of the things that is central um, to your argument in the essay is the distinction between direct and as, as you said there uh, systemic uh, reasoners systemic thinkers in, in terms of arguments and logic um, could you just explain what you mean by this sort of distinction because I think it's a very interesting um, one that you use in um, in the essay, but people might not necessarily, um, you know, understand without a sort of like a, a full explanation what you mean between the difference between direct and uh, systemic reasoners and, 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 and arguers. Yeah, it's the, it's a it's a concept described by the uh, American psychologists, political psychologist and linguist George Lakoff, mm. um, who's written quite interestingly about why people tend to come down on one side of political divide or the other why people end up being conservatives or uh or liberals to use the american terminology um and i'd kind of borrowed this particular he writes about lots of other stuff this is quite a small part of his argument but his argument is that certainly in the modern post-culture war united states Mm. 
the Republicans speak very much to direct reasoning, which is um, linguistically uh, kind of A plus B equals C. Yeah. You do X, it has Y outcome, the result is Z. Um, it's You can see the, 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 the series of causes and they're mm. kind of linear, um, hence the title of my essay was Thinking in Straight Lines. So he describes that as one way of reasoning and um, systemic thinking as another way of reasoning mm. which is uh used by um which is much more used by the democrat party in the us and which tends to say uh that things are the results of the broader social and societal context from which they emerge um the example he uses is uh the environment which to a direct reasoner is quite uh it's not an at all intuitive or obvious mm. thing why driving your car would cause ice caps to melt on the other side of mm. the road yeah um and he uses the example of Re republican senators bringing snowballs into the uh, uh or congressmen sorry bringing snowballs um in, out in front of media mm. cameras and yeah. saying it's snowing how can we have global warming that's that doesn't make sense yeah and that may be laughable in some sense mm. to a systemic reasoner but it's also quite intuitive to believe in climate change you need to accept a whole set of systemic wider mm -hmm. sequences and factors and a whole set of tendencies rather than dealing in absolutes mm -hmm. um that you know there's a tendency that um for a range of systemic factors somebody uh, growing up in deprivation will be more likely to be drawn into into crime, for example, uh, and therefore you adopt more of a tough on the causes of crime approach than a tough on crime approach. Um, but that's not necessarily, there's lots of exceptions to that rule. It's not, it doesn't deal in absolutes and it's um, uh, it's quite, it's, it's much harder to understand in a certain respect. So my kind of argument is that this, real, the realignment happening in British politics is increasingly between these sorts of quite direct A plus B equals C, mm direct types of reasoning and uh, much more systemic structural societal analyses put forward by the progressive left. And often there's quite deep non-secateurs happening. Um, a lot of culture war debates, I think, take place on the basis of non-secateurs between those mm. two understandings of things. Um, and I tend to, th yeah, my argument in, in thinking in straight lines is that that difference is... Um, bigger difference than we perhaps appreciate and that the actual values difference differences when it comes to the environment or when it comes to equalities or uh, a whole range of issues aren't as pronounced as we might think mm -hmm. but it's more that that kind of causation difference that that is a, a big and understated factor mm -hmm. and in in the essay you um argue that one of the people who is, is best at using um, direct reasoning is is Boris Johnson in, in, in terms of some of the language that he uses and some of the um, metaphors and, and, and things like that. Do you think that the way that he uses language in some ways perhaps um, mirrors uh, a, a kind of like simplicity in, in language that um, Margaret Thatcher had? Because I remember Years and years ago, this is go this is going back about I think ten years or so, um, when Johnson was being interviewed by Jeremy Paxman, he used an example of the kind of language that Margaret Thatcher um, used. That it was very sort of um, 
simple direct language to get her point across. And he held that up as, a, as an example that he felt that other politicians um, should follow in, in terms of conveying points. Do you think that that's the kind of the, the, the key to him being able to resonate with people in following that same sort of technique that Margaret Thatcher had in, in, in terms of making her, her point very, very clear, like the ladies not for turning being perhaps one of the most famous examples of, of her use of language in, in that sense? That's a really interesting point. Um, the I should be clear when I use direct language, I'm not simply direct logic. I'm not simply talking about kind of short sentences mm, yes. necessarily, um, but about the wider uh, kind of sequences and causes mm. of effect yes. that might happen. So um, you can get, I think, short sentences, a slogan like defund to the police used by the contemporary activist left, which is you know, three words, very simple mm. on, on the face of it, might sound quite direct, but actually isn't necessarily intuitive to mm. direct reasoner because it yes. re relies on a whole set of systemic assumptions yeah. about um, uh, the, the, the role of the police and, and whether tough policing is actually the way to, uh, to deal with crime or whether the, the wider societal problems mm. are the thing that you need to deal with. Um, on the question of Boris Johnson, um, absolutely, I think he... Uh, is an extremely good at speaking to direct reasoners and at doing so in a way that, um, in a certain respect, delivers real agency and which demystifies or which appears to demystify quite complicated issues. So his use of metaphors, mm. which we sometimes scoff at on the left, but when he talks about bunging Brexit in the microwave or things like that, he implies that something that was actually very complicated and systemic i.e. removing a trading block of 27 countries mm. is as simple as making a, a four-minute ready meal for yourself. Yeah. And that that is, on one level, that's very irresponsible. And I, I have very low opinion of Boris Johnson because I think he's highly responsible in the way he does some of these things and the way that he... But we also need... And that use of metaphors mm. is an interesting parallel with Margaret Thatcher, you know, when she would talk about the national finances very much using the... Uh, the narratives of um, uh, the the housewife um, looking at what's in the cupboard in the kitchen, sort of a thing, trying to bringing complicated issues and implying that they follow the same logic as much more simple, direct, A plus B equals C things. Mm. Um, so I think that that parallel is definitely there with Boris Johnson, and I think he's he's able to be to appeal to a raft of voters who do not consider themselves, are not drawn to the, um, the, the, the racism of Nigel Farage necessarily, aren't conventional Tories mm. often in terms of what they support uh, and are not, um, uh, would often even consider themselves relatively socially liberal and progressive um, in terms of their basic views about gender equality, things like this, but who, uh, who are drawn to his willingness to kind of call a spade a spade to dismiss complex ideas as hogwash or guff or bunk or whatever. And even though he's using public school language to dismiss those terms, <laughs> he's he's essentially saying, you don't need to worry. The world isn't as complicated and frightening as all that. Not every question is as complicated as it as as the the left likes to make out. Sometimes it really is does what it says on the tin. And I think that is a, an important thing to to understand about 
his appeal and the agency that his appeal brings, even though he's obviously his star is very much fallen since um, Partygate. Uh, it, I think it's it's worth us taking some pause to thought pause to think about why he's been so successful for a prolonged period at picking up those former Labour heartland voters. Um, and I think his use of direct reasoning is a really big part of that. Mm. Well, one of the things that um, is also really interesting to pick up from um, the essay is the contrast, as, as you say, that Britain is becoming um, a more progressive country generally um, over time. And we're seeing that in the way that the, the Conservative Party um, react to progress. You use the example of David Cameron using language that's uh, much more socially liberal than his predecessors and, and Boris Johnson being in, in terms of um, economic policies um, to the left of, of, of some other um, previous Conservative leaders. Do you think then that this is something that perhaps um, is a, a way in which the Conservative Party can continue to renew itself? Because in the past decade and a bit, in the past 12 or 13 years that we've had a Conservative government, we've seen three um, Conservative Prime Ministers. And in each um, instance, we have seen a certain renewal um, once they have become leader of the party. Um, Cameron obviously talking about things in a much more socially uh, progressive or socially liberal way than Theresa May um, talking about the just about managing and then Boris Johnson, you know, saying that, oh, there isn't going to be any austerity and we have to invest more, we have to level up. Do you think that that's a, a core part of the way that the Conservatives are able to continue uh, to appeal to, to certain voters is that, every so often, every couple of years, they almost have like a, a year zero moment where the party, at least um, aesthetically speaking, in, in terms of rhetoric, changes to make itself distinct from the previous uh, Conservative Party of a, of a few years before. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think you're seeing that now with some of their behaviour. Um, you know, I hope that this, these strategies won't be successful, by the way, obviously, but I um, think things like the war on woke, the uh, using the, the essential tactic that they've concluded works quite well in a country which is at every part of society becoming steadily more socially liberal, um, is to pick wedge issues that divide the very liberal voters who are concentrated in, in cities and tend to be graduates from the quite liberal voters in the rest of the country. Um, and, they t and, and the war on woke is a classic example of that because mm. it's picking up on, on things that the former would be comfortable with and the latter wouldn't. Um, and Brexit actually was a good example. A lot of people, uh, I think, who voted for Brexit weren't voting for a, a really kind of right-wing, socially conservative vision of Britain, but they, mm. were, they were voting for a a kind of simpler version and they were it wasn't as I don't think it was as direct as as clearly a massive values divide as people sometimes think um so I think that they've decided that that's a successful strategy uh and you're completely right it would be basically unsayable to say even some of the things that were being said by conservative politicians in uh in the 1980s or early 1990s um 
uh, not just on social issues actually, but even I think the the kind of on your bike mm. rhetoric of Norman Tebbit, I don't think mm. would play very well with anyone or with, with with large numbers of people now because those argument those really really right wing economic arguments um, I think have also been dismissed in quite large part. Um, so the fact that I think a big part of what's changed is that you can have a phenomenon where all parts of the country are moving in a more socially liberal, more socially progressive direction, whilst at the same time, the gap between those who are most socially liberal and those who are least socially liberal is growing um, because of increasing levels of uh, uh, for, uh, graduate education, um, the concentration of the most liberal in urban hubs uh, where they talk to one another and become more liberal at a faster speed, if you like. Yeah. These things, I think, are... Um, so there's a wide gap, wider and wider gap to exploit between the very liberal and the quite liberal, mm. if you want to put it that way. Um, and I think elements of the Conservative strategy, I'm not going to say all of it, because I know that there's probably lots of different schools of thought on the right, but is that there's, there is mileage to be had um, in finding positions within that growing space between the very liberal and the quite liberal uh, and, and trying to expo exploit them for electoral purposes. Mm. Um, we've, we've talked quite a bit about the Conservative Party, but I'd like to move on to talking about Labour, because, of course, only a few days ago, um, we had the 25th anniversary of the 1997 general election victory, Tony Blair uh, becoming Prime Minister for the first time. And it's a, a, an issue that we've have talked about quite a bit um, before. But in light of the essay and in light of the example um, that you use in terms of the distinction between a, a direct reasoner and a, a, a systemic reasoner, the, um, the example of crime, uh, tough on crime, tough on the um, causes of crime, where do you think um, Tony Blair fits in terms of the... Um, differences between a, a direct reasoner and a, and a systemic reasoner? Or do you think that he, as he does in, in quite a lot of other things politically, fits somewhere in the middle in terms of um, utilising elements of uh, uh, utilising elements of both in terms of, of, of rhetoric, particularly um, thinking back to 97? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And I think Tony Blair's approach was actually very one of the most interesting things in his book, um, A Journey, which I, I quote in the essay, mm. is when he was looking for a head of communications uh, and he's looking at several options, but he settles upon Alistair Campbell um, because he says, I really wanted a tabloid person. It needs to be a tabloid person. And I think that gets to the, uh, the sometimes misunderstood element of Tony Blair's appeal certainly at that point, um, which was that he was actually pretty good at this direct reasoning, quite comfortable with saying stuff that was very much from that kind of uh, A plus B equals C logic and saw his role as to reconnect Labour with um, deprived and, and working class seats who didn't feel able to vote for the party uh, during the 1980s. Um, He's often seen as a person who made Labour more middle class, which he arguably did. Mm. But he, um, a big part of it was that he was quite comfortable with that tabloid rhetoric, uh, and was not a pun. And he's now seen as a sort of 
international globe trotting person who's, who's, who is detached from that but certainly i think his pitch was absolutely i mean as you say tough on crime tough on the causes of crime is it's a kind of almost too perfect fusion of direct and systemic thinking and it was about saying both both are welcome within the labor tent um so yeah i think he uh and uh, certainly in the 90s and 2000s would have been considered himself to be reconnecting labor with that desire to not overthink things to not always be looking for root causes to say sometimes it really is as simple as this certainly a lot of the positions he took on national security um nuclear deterrent things like this very much aligned with um uh, direct reasoning if you like mm. Um, in, in terms of looking to the future, you, you mentioned that um, COVID should be seen um, by Keir Starmer and the Labour Party as equivalent to um, the aftermath of the Second World War in terms of a moment when um, it's clear that things have continually failed um, with elements of the British state and elements of the British system and things need to be reformed and need to be changed. How do you think that that would be best articulated in terms of either making a, a, a clear slogan or, or, or making a, a clear point that you think people would be able to connect with? Because I, I think it's quite interesting when you look at certain elements of um, direct speaking and, and, and direct logic quite often, though, as, as you said, it doesn't always mean um, short and snappy sentences quite often it does mean uh, short and snappy sentences which can be used really rather effectively as um slogans and can be used as a sort of like talking point how, how do you think he would be able to um get that message down into uh, a, a few words or into a, a, a general slogan that people would be able to to understand and, and be able to um use and and, and convince other people to to vote for Labour? The, um, yeah, the, the point I, I make in the essay is that there is now a time, I think, a period to rebuild. The parallels with the Second World War uh, and with the desire to rebuild after that uh, have been made before. And I don't necessarily, I'm not going to stick my head above the parapet and suggest <laughs> a sort of three-word take-back control type slogan that's going to make, make that happen. Um, and I do think we should bear in mind that uh, systemic arguments are generally harder to make than direct arguments, mm. which is one of the reasons, and in my view, an understated reason why life is generally harder for progressives than uh, than for for conservatives is because um, saying let's take a step back, let's look at the wider factors that have led this person to commit this crime or which have led um, this person to seek asylum are harder to make and often more complicated than the, the more simple uh straightforward arguments put forward um in a very direct way sometimes uh so i wouldn't say that there's a a perfect sound a systemic soundbite that can match the the perfectness of the the kind of direct soundbite fights favored by the likes of dominic cummings but i do think that there's three strategies the first which i think kirsten has very much been doing is to be really confident with um using direct language with talking in uh or, or with with focusing on issues like 
crime where it's they're really simple bread and butter butter issues and where people need to regain confidence that Labour is basically able to to call a spade a spade when it matters is able to say we're going to do we're going to prioritize national security on this thing we're going to deal with this issue that we see in front of us before we start to think about the wider systemic problems that have caused it um so i think the first thing is that labor has to be really clear about that it's comfortable using direct thinking and logic when it matters and that it doesn't see direct thinking as always in opposition to systemic thinking you know you can you can make a systemic argument about the need to borrow more to invest in the economy whilst accepting that there is a no matter how how keynesian an argument you make there is a a bottom line that the money will um run out at some point and you can kind of uh those two things aren't necessarily at odds with one another um similarly you can support a much more liberal uh penal system prison system police policing um which looks at the wider societal factors looks at rehabilitation whilst understanding there are direct arguments for public safety which at certain moments you have to be um you have to take very seriously so i think that first thing of appreciating the value of direct systemic of direct thinking Keir Starmer's done very well i think the second thing that progressives need to do is to distance themselves from a small subset of progressive groups and organizations who make systemic and structural arguments more complicated rather than less by saying everything's linked the system's designed to exploit um these problems are baked into our system uh social justice is climate justice lots of these kind of things which which make things more complicated rather than less i think progressives need to see it as their role to demystify systemic thinking and say okay well why is it that deprivation leads to um leads to crime here's the reason why there is a, ten, a set of tendencies and and we here's how we're going to join those dots and i think the third thing is labor um once it's done those taking those first two steps wins the space to make the argument for big systemic and structural reforms um of the kind that happened in 1945 you know the production of the creation of new institutions tangible changes to uh the the kind of the state which create a new um safety net that people can rely on a new opportunity that people can take advantage of um and and really which really explain why we're doing those things mm -hmm. so those are the three points i think really acknowledge the acknowledge the value of direct reasoning dismiss the more confusing elements of progressive systemic thinking and then make radical arguments about how you fix the fix the system Absolutely. Well, thank you once again um, for coming on the podcast, Chris. Uh, I have, however, uh, one final question, which is not uh, entirely uh, related to the essay. But um, obviously, recently we've had Easter and Easter bank holidays and, and, and people eating Easter eggs. There might even still be some people who are still uh, eating uh, their Easter eggs uh, now. But my final question to you is this. If you had to receive uh, an Easter egg that was uh, representative of or fashioned after any political figure uh, alive or dead, who would you pick to receive an Easter egg of? So an, an Easter egg uh, sculpted in the, the physical image yes. of, a, uh, 
uh, of a politician. Uh, do you yes. know what? I'm going to be play unbelievably safe and go for a Clement Attlee shaped Easter egg, uh, which would be I would unwrap with um, with joy as it uh, as it arrived on uh, on Easter Sunday. I think that that's a a a, um, a great response, Chris, and I and I think many people would uh, equally be happy to receive a Clement Athlete um, Easter egg. Thank you once again uh, for coming on the podcast. If people want to read the essay, where should they go to read it? It's um, there's there's three ways you can read it actually. So it's on the Progressive Britain website um, under a page called Thinking in Straight Line, so you can read it as a report format there. It's on a medium, a medium blog, so you can read it as a long read there, just by googling "medium thinking in straight lines." And um, it's also a, an Amazon ebook, which you can buy for a pound if you'd like to read it on a Kindle uh, e-reader. Excellent! Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, I hope you listen to the next one.